0: Well, if you've not already done so, I want to encourage you to find the little book of 1 Peter in the New Testament. And we're going to be looking at chapter 5. We are coming to the the end, nearing the end of our study of this book for the months of June and July. And what we have learned, one of the things that should always stay with you, if you remember nothing else from our study, is that if I need guidance, if I need encouragement in how as a Christian, to face suffering and persecution, uh, trouble, difficulty. I have a book in the New Testament that I can go to, and that's the book of 1 Peter. He wrote this book for individuals who who felt very much like you would at times, where it seemed like everything is about to go wrong. Everything was going wrong. And while our threats are different, uh, our threats are becoming increasingly similar. They were threatened with loss of Their belongings, their things, their lives, their families, and I fear increasingly as believers in North America, we may one day face something very similar. And so this is an important book, and I think it's very timely at this point in our our nation's history that we as believers take very seriously this business of how we are to respond when people are harsh, cruel, mean, unkind, or even deadly in their approach to us. As we've gone through these chapters, we've seen encouragement regarding understanding why we suffer. We have seen that faith, for example, is something that God cares about very much, and that He is working to build your faith, deepen your faith, uh, purify it so that you're trusting just Him and no one else. We've seen how He has called you and I to live a beautiful life, a life where we are trusting Him completely, uh, so much so that others might even ask us the reason for the hope that's in us. We are so confident in our Savior, so confident in his return, and seeking to please him with our life in every relationship that that others would actually ask us, the reason for the beautiful life that you and I live, a life of peace. Why are you peaceful? Why do you have hope? Why are you at rest? But as we come to chapter 5, one of the things that's really fascinating here is he suddenly uh, begins talking about the leadership in the church. And it's fascinating to me that when Christians are in trouble, when a church is feeling pressure, that one of the individuals that he wants to address are those who are the leaders of the church. And as we heard in our our text that Jordan read for us, in the first four verses of chapter 5, he addresses the elders of the church. And, um, And we want to explore what that means and what is he saying to them because... What's very clear by what Peter is doing is that when you're in trouble, you need a shepherd. You need someone who is willing to come alongside you, someone who is able to help you, strengthen you in the face of your difficulty, someone who's looking out for you when no one else may be looking out for you, someone who cares. So this morning, we want to focus on these first four verses. If you've not already found it in your, in your worship folder, there's a listening guide Fill in the blanks, and uh, not only does it tell you when we're almost done, I kid about that, but it also is something that you can use to share what God is showing you to someone else, and something you can look back on during the week, during your own time alone with the Lord. I want to build this uh, message calling it this, shepherding his sheep in a sick society. Shepherding his sheep in a sick society, and I believe that's where we are. And and more than ever, we need shepherds who know their calling and know what God has sent them to do. What does a shepherd do when God's people encounter suffering? We want to break this text down just looking at it uh, virtually verse by verse. What a shepherd does when God's people encounter suffering? Number one, he gives serious attention to his own spiritual maturity. Um, You say, well, that doesn't help me very much. Well, that helps you a lot and we'll see why in just a moment. He says in verse 1, the elders who are among you, I exhort. I've got something to say to you, elders. And uh, he says, the elders that are among you, I exhort. Now, one question that should come to your mind right away is why did he refer to these men, and they were all men, why did he refer to these men as elders? Why did he call them elders? You see, in and depending on what church you attend, we have different names for the ministers that serve those churches. We have priests and bishops and uh, deacons and archdeacons and curates and ministers and pastors and, and, and all kinds of different things that we refer to these people as superintendents. We call them different things. Why does he call them elders? What's well, really interesting, in, as you remember, that 1 Peter was not a book written to one church. But it was written to five regions in what we call Turkey today of Asia Minor. Five regions. There were many churches that received this letter. It didn't go to just one church. You know, sometimes scholars will look at the text and they'll say, well, there wasn't a, a single plan of leadership in the New Testament. Not true. As you look at this, he, he's addressing this to all the churches in Asia Minor, essentially, these five regions and and he refers to those regions in verse 1, for example. Chapter 1, verse 1. Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to the pilgrims of the dispersion in Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia. And then he comes to verse 1, and he says, he addresses all the leaders in all five of those regions as elders. And he expected all the churches would know who he was talking to. When you go to the letter just before 1 Peter, James The letter of James is also a circular letter. It was written to all the saints throughout the dispersion, all the saints in the Roman Empire. And when you come in his letter to um, the the very last chapter, verse 14 of chapter 5 of James, he says, Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church. A circular letter that went all over the Roman Empire. He says, When you're sick, call the elders. the church and we could spend a lot of time just on what that verse means when when you're sick but I just want you to see that he's addressing an office that everybody understood and everybody recognized it was a normal way of referring to church leaders in Acts chapter 14 when Paul and Barnabas what did they do with new converts well they taught them they proclaimed to them the gospel they helped ground them in their faith and taught them how to walk in the spirit they taught them those things But then it tells us in acts 14 verse 23 that paul and barnabas appointed elders for them in each church and so every church they started every church in the new testament associated with paul had a group of men who were responsible for the spiritual well-being of that church you say well pastor we don't call you elder we call you pastor so where do we get this word pastor from what about the word bishop i've read in my bible Or it may be translated overseer. What about that? What about those particular terms? Well, the word elder is used never as a verb. You don't elder a church. You don't do that. It's always used to refer to an office about 20 times. Overseer, also translated bishop, uh, probably most men understood, but it simply refers to a function of oversight, is used as a noun about five times, especially in 1st Timothy. 1 Timothy 5 and uh, 1 Timothy 3 and in Titus 1 where the qualifications for pastors are given, but they're called overseers or bishops. The word pastor is used as a noun one time. And that's in Ephesians 4 when it talks about God giving some to the church to be apostles, some prophets, some evangelists, some pastors and teachers. And pastor, teacher is hyphenated. And it's the only place where the word pastor is used as a noun. Uh, Everywhere else, pastor is used as a verb. You say, Pastor, what's your point? Well, in the New Testament, what we discover is that elder is the normal way of describing a church leader. But he has a function of pastoring or shepherding. And that is described in this passage that we're reading right now in 1 Peter 5, also in Acts 20. He has a function of pastoring. He also has a function of oversight. We're going to talk about that in just a moment. A function of oversight. And and that's used here also in this passage in 1 Peter 5 as a verb. So pastoring, oversight, is what pastors do. We call them pastors in the Baptist church. But it was simply a way of describing what elders did in the New Testament. Now the word elder, as the name implies, typically we would think if someone's my elder, then they're older than I am. But elder in in the sense of a leader in the church had nothing to do with age necessarily. In fact, when uh, Paul talked to Timothy, when he wrote to Timothy, who was an elder, he specifically said to him, let no man despise your youth. (laughs) Because he wasn't as old as someone would expect an elder to be. It's all about experience, not age. Experience in handling The truth, someone who's spiritually mature and can help a group of Christians become spiritually mature. Now, in this sense, it makes sense to call them elders because the mission of the church is not to make more members. That may surprise you, but that's the truth. Our goal is not to make more members. Our goal is not to make more converts. Yes, we want to see people one to Christ, but our calling is to make disciples, go in all the world, make disciples of people, people who follow Christ. And the goal of discipleship is maturity. Paul said in Colossians 1.8, Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom. Why? That we may present everyone mature in Christ. And so the goal is maturity. And the calling of the elder is to help others become mature. So Peter's saying, look, elders, listen up. Your title is your assignment. Your title, elder, is your assignment. Never forget, you are first and foremost to be mature. Live the beautiful life. Your hope should be obvious that it's in Christ. Respect authority. Offer kindness to anyone. Endure mistreatment with grace. That is the picture. Throughout the letter, the first four chapters, and now he's telling these men to model that. So no matter how anyone else treats you, if you're a church leader, whether it's unruly sheep or an unholy Satan, you're to be like Jesus in response. Secondly, what a shepherd does when God's people encounter suffering, number two, he keeps his focus on the mission. He keeps his focus on the mission. In verse two, he begins his address. He says, shepherd the flock of God which is among you, serving as overseers. And so there's the mission. Well, the first aspect of the mission, is that you're taking care of something that doesn't belong to you. Shepherd what? The flock? Whose flock? The flock of God. It's not my sheep, not not my flock, not my church. He tells these men to shepherd the flock that belongs to God. That means you're taking care of a group of people who, in fact, belong to someone else. Sometimes I hear pastors, I know what they mean. They'll say, well, my church, my church, my church, we do this. And they'll talk about their staff that way. They'll say, well, my staff. And, um, and technically, that's a big error. That's a big mistake. Because it's not belonging to a man. It belongs to God. It belongs to him. And so shepherds are not owners. Shepherds are all about the life of the sheep. And he uses this expression, shepherd the flock of God. What does that mean? It means that they're all about everything that a shepherd is to a sheep. He, he leads them. He, he protects them from wolves. That analogy is used by Jesus in John 10, by the apostle Paul in Acts 20. He describes that work of protecting the flock against wolves. One of their greatest assignments is to feed them. You know, the goal is to, get, to keep the sheep alive, <laughs> to keep them alive. And to keep them alive, they have to be fed. And, um, and you can't make them eat, but you can give them the food. You can lead them to the pasture. And so the feeding is a primary task. In First Timothy 5.17, Paul says, Let the elders who rule well be counted worthy of double honor, especially those who labor in the word and doctrine. Now, what's interesting is what Peter does in this text. He says, shepherd the flock of God, and then he talks about exercising Oversight, or serving as overseer. So, of all the spectrum of things that you could say that a shepherd does, he talks about oversight when it comes to dealing with Christians who are in trouble. Now, the word overseer, as the name implies, uh, means to see over. It's a Greek word, epi, which means over. Skopos, which means to see and so in this function this task the pastor the elder is to see over the flock to look out for them well what are you watching for if you're a pastor what are you overseeing well earlier in this very book in first peter two twenty five, we read this for you were like sheep going astray but you have now returned to the shepherd and overseer of your souls you see jesus is watching out for our souls Pastors, elders, are called to do the same thing. In Hebrews 13, 17, the writer says, Obey those who rule over you and be submissive. Why? For they watch out for your souls as those who must give an account. They're soul watchers. They're, they're watching out for the condition of your soul. It's easy for sheep to crumble when there's an antagonist, when there's fear, when there's a wolf in the flock. They sca- who's going to watch over their soul. He's going to ask questions like, is this dear one growing in faith or is their faith getting weak? Is this dear one knowing him? Are they experiencing him? Is there hope in him? Are they ready to die knowing that when they're absent from the body, they'll be present with the Lord or are they scared to death of death? Is that person ready? Do they have that hope? Are they living that beautiful life? Have they, have they such a peace that Jesus promised For his children that that peace is overflowing in every circumstance are they pursuing God's call in ministry pastor teachers equip the Saints for the work of the ministry that is their ministry to equip Saints to do ministry are they responding to God's call for their ministry thirdly what a shepherd does when God's people encounter suffering He wars against wrong attitudes in his mind. He wars against wrong attitudes in his mind. The next three phrases in the text in verse 2 and 3. Peter is talking about how shepherds do oversight. He's saying this is the manner in which it should be done. This is how it should be done. And so the first one he says is not by compulsion, not exercising oversight, not by compulsion, but willingly. And the word compulsion means forced. It means doing something against his will. It means his will is not in it. He doesn't want to do it. Now why would a pastor ever not want to be a pastor Why would a pastor not want to exercise his responsibility of watching over the souls of God's flock? Why would he ever do it out of compulsion? Well, let me give you some reasons. Um, As you know, for 10 years, I traveled in Arkansas, and I spent a lot of time with pastors and church leaders. And... I used to ask myself when I first went to the state convention because I, I was really, in my mind, I was stepping back away from the trenches here. And, um, and so I would ask myself often, I, I, I think truthfully, not a week went by that I didn't ask the question, what is it that we were doing in Little Rock that made a difference as we serve 1500 churches in Arkansas? What is it that we, we were doing that made a difference? And I, I came to this conclusion pretty early on. It wasn't the workshops. It wasn't the, the strategic planning things that we did. It wasn't the, the big events that we held. It wasn't the evangelism conference. It wasn't the annual meeting. It wasn't any of those things. The number one thing that we did that made a difference was relationships. The typical pastor in Arkansas is struggling is struggling to watch over the souls of the flock of God. Why? Burnout. Burnout's one. They work nonstop, no breaks. When a call comes at 1030, you just put your head down on the pillow. You can't ignore when someone's in trouble. You can't ignore it. You got to go. And uh, when you're a solo pastor of a smaller membership church, you're it. I mean, that's the way our churches are structured. You're the only one that can go. You're the only one that can do that ministry. And, um, and so that pastor uh, is always on call, and not just always on call. He's usually interrupting something else he's doing that he has to do in order to do that other ministry. And uh, whether it's prepare a sermon, whether it's uh, time with his family, whether it's uh, carrying out some other responsibility that he has, he is often taking away from one area to meet the need in another and there's a constant sense that it's never done, <laughs> never never finished, never goes home, feels like it's over or it's complete. A lot of guys are burned out, and they drop out. Discouragement. Discouragement. This pastor, 24-7, he's a pastor. <laughs> his assignment, his desire is to take care of the souls of his flock, And so he wants to see them grow in Christ. And he wants to reach others for Jesus, sharing the gospel with them. And he has ideas, and he presents those ideas and and says, let's go do this, let's go do this, let's try this, let's go this direction. And in church after church after church, he gets shot down. And he has that experience of the pushback. And he gets discouraged. And closely on the heels of that, he feels lonely. And I hear that I heard these words. There's not a week that goes by here and when that I still don't get calls or messages from pastors, and they're lonely. They don't have anyone to talk to because they're like, "Man, this isn't going well for me." No, I'm discouraged about this, and they tell someone that that person's going to go tell everybody else, and so they don't talk to anybody. They get lonely. They have a sense of failure how many smaller membership church pastors I've sat with who feel discouraged because they can't do church like the big church down the road. They can't offer the big programs. They can't do children's ministry with a Todd Mano or student ministry with a Dustin Clegg. They can't do those kinds of things. They don't have a big choir. They don't have instruments. They don't have PowerPoint. They don't have those things. And they feel like, I can't do what the big church does and my church is a failure and I'm a failure. They're wrong. But that's how they feel. I believe the things that smaller membership churches can do much better than a larger church. And I'm high on smaller membership churches and their pastors. Family hits and losses is another reason. Guys lose heart. Their will's not in it. The enemy targets the pastor first because if he can take out the shepherd, the sheep will scatter. And so he'll target that pastor. And, and every week in arkansas pastors go down sometimes it's moral failure sometimes it's divorce sometimes they're losing their children and their families are attacked their families are criticized their families are in trouble the result is that one in four ministry experiences in the united states one in four ends in what's called forced termination that's a fancy way of saying the guy got fired one in four there are about 50 of those in Arkansas that we have recorded, that we can record. That means about 1,700 pastors a month nationwide are quitting the ministry for good. They're struggling. And what Peter says is, not do, don't do this by compulsion. Don't do this without your will being in the game. Don't do this with a sense of a broken heart. What must he do? He needs to remind himself of this. In Acts 20, verse 28, the Apostle Paul, talking to the elders from Ephesus, he said, Therefore take heed to yourselves and to all the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers, to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. You're not a pastor. You're not a shepherd because some church called you. You are that because God made you that. God raised you up. The Holy Spirit made you that. And so that's why I tell guys over and over again, there's only one person that has to be happy with you, the one who called you. He's the one that you serve. And you have to be faithful to Him. <laughs> and your desire, to, it can't be to please everybody else. It's going to drive you mad. Your desire is to please the Lord Jesus To please him alone, and you know what? That's what a mature Christian does, and that's what every Christian is called to do—to live with one person that they have to make happy, and the rest, God will take care of them. He's got to battle those wrong attitudes. He's got to keep his eyes on Jesus, and keep his eyes on Jesus. There's a there's a fourth thing. Not only does he war against wrong attitudes in his mind. But he needs, he monitors his ministry motivation. He monitors his ministry motivation. It says in verse 2, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly. It's about motivation. Why is he doing this oversight of souls? Why is he doing it? Well, could you earn a living being an elder in the New Testament? Well, yes. We read that scripture earlier in 1 Timothy 5 that says that elders who rule well should be worthy of double honor. It's talking about money, it's talking about being paid. But this issue of compensation affects pastors today in a couple ways. Some pastors, not many, but some pastors move from one position to another simply because it's a higher salary. A higher salary. It affects pastors in this way. Sometimes they're moving from one place to another to get away from a low salary. (laughs) They're being starved out. And, um, And they can't take care of their family. So I tell pastors... Pastors should never make a move based on money alone. That's not a right motivation. Pastors also should never be bashful about talking about the needs of their family and asking for help, asking for a raise when their family's in trouble. And there's so many guys that are hurting, hurting in ministry because they can't make ends meet, take care of their family, and uh, the church doesn't know. When this phrase, not for dishonest gain, but eagerly, Peter is calling elders to check their motivation. They should be serving eagerly, eagerly, not for dishonest gain. In 1 Timothy 3 1, the Apostle Paul refers to this as he gives qualifications. This is a faithful saying. If any man desires position of a bishop or an overseer, he desires a good work. Some people say, well, my, my ministry was all about being called to ministry. I, you know, a lot of times I remember when, uh, when my son was uh, studying ministry at Washtenaw, David, and and he called me up one day he said dad they're telling me i need to write out my call to ministry and uh my call is not the same as the other guys And i said what what are the other guys saying and they said i went out hunting one night we were we were coon hunting or something went out hunting one night got lost thought i was going to die couldn't find my way home and i told god if you would get me out of this i'll be a preacher And that was their call to ministry, like God had to beat them around the head and shoulders. You know, Paul says in 1 Timothy 3 1, he said, If a man wants to do this, he desires a good thing. God wants to call people who want eagerly to serve him, who want to do this work. And it's not about the money, he doesn't have to do it, he gets to do it. It's not just a job, it's a passion. Now, don't tell the finance committee this, but I would do this even if I wasn't paid to do it. But don't tell them that. I can be good for nothing. Number five, what a shepherd does when God's people encounter suffering. Number five, he models his message through his personal walk. He models his message through his personal walk. Look at verse three. Nor as being lords over those entrusted to you but being examples to the flock it's a very different kind of leadership from the kind of leadership in the world peter heard jesus talk about this peter didn't make this up in matthew 20 verse 25 but jesus called them to himself and said you know that the rulers of the gentiles lord it over them and those who are great exercise authority who are great exercise authority over them yet it shall not be so among you but whoever desires to become great among you let him be your servant and so the point is leadership is not about titles or positions it's about meeting needs it's about serving watching over souls now peter is adding in this moment he's adding something to that understanding of of leadership He says, when in trouble, people need demonstration of what it means to walk with God. They don't need to just be told what to do. They need to be shown what to do. Be examples, he says, to the flock. So don't just tell me. Sheep should say to their pastor, show me. And so, pastor, is your faith being tested? Pastor, pastor. Are you serving so you can look forward to his return are you looking forward to the return of Jesus pastor are you craving the presence of Jesus in his word are you growing pastor how are you responding when people attack you and say false things to you are you returning reviling for reviling or are you like Jesus who didn't revile when he was reviled God lets things happen to pastors for a reason now this is something a lot of guys don't understand and a lot of congregations don't understand, but when trouble comes into a pastor's life, oftentimes that problem that has come into his life has a twofold purpose. Uh, One purpose is that that moment in his life has become a time for pastoral teaching. He becomes a living illustration of whatever he's been teaching. At other times, it's also for personal training and where he is growing, he is stretching, because he's also not just a shepherd, he's also a sheep. Very powerful passage of Scripture. 2 Corinthians 1, verses 6 to 9. I would encourage you to just jot that down on the margin. 2 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 6 to 9. Now, if we are afflicted, this is Paul writing to the people in Corinth. If we are afflicted, it is for your consolation and salvation which is effective for enduring the same sufferings which we also suffer. If we are comforted, it is for your consolation and salvation. And then one verse later, verse 80 says, For we do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, of our trouble which came to us in Asia, that we were burdened beyond measure above strength, so that we despaired even of life. Yes, we had the sentence of death in ourselves. Why? Why? That we should not trust in ourselves, but in God who raises the dead. And so it was not only for the benefit of his readers that he went through the experience of hurt and suffering and receiving comfort from God and learning to do that and then showing others how to do that. It was also so that he himself would grow in faith, greater and greater and greater dependence on God and nothing else. There's not a staff person. I would say right now, almost all of our pastors here at Wind Baptist, if you were to sit them down, look them in the eye, and they told you the truth, they would tell you that they're facing a tremendous challenge or point of pressure in their life this morning. And God brings those things into a shepherd's life. Not only so that they will grow, but often so that they can be an example to the flock. Church, pray for your pastors. Pray for your pastors. Pray for your leaders. They need it. They need it. And every major persecution, past and present, when the enemy comes, they always come after the shepherds first. Always. Always. It's happening today around the world. When they're going to persecute the church, they go after the shepherd first. And that shepherd at that moment has the opportunity to shine brightly for Jesus in a dark situation. Last of all, what a shepherd does when God's people encounter suffering, number six, he keeps himself under the master. He keeps himself under the master. Look at verse four. And when the chief shepherd appears, see, the pastor's not the chief shepherd. The staff, they're not the chief shepherds. Deacons, they're not the chief shepherds. No one in the church is a chief shepherd. Jesus is the chief shepherd. And it says, when Jesus appears, you will receive the crown of glory that does not fade away. The pastor has a public ministry as a shepherd, but at the end of the day, he is himself a sheep. And he answers to his shepherd. It's not the pastor's flock, it's his flock. And that's why I think the single greatest metric or measure of a pastor It's his own walk with God. His own prayer life. And there's so much that is affected in an entire church and in that gentleman's ministry that flows out of his own prayer life. Why? Because he is not the chief shepherd. And what he says, what he does, is to be at the direction of the chief shepherd. And that pastor, that dear pastor that's not praying for whatever reason, he may be burdened, he may be overwhelmed, he may be tired, he may be discouraged, he may be depressed. A thousand different reasons why a pastor may not pray. He may feel like he just doesn't have time. But if a pastor is not praying, he cannot possibly be hearing the great shepherd. And providing the kind of oversight that God has called him to. And I don't say that to be a put a beat down on a, on a preacher or a pastor. But I do offer that as encouragement. Uh, if a pastor is listening, it's not your flock. It's his flock. And you have an assignment, dear one. But it's not to take Jesus' place. So you have a calling, church. It's not just true of a pastor or an elder. You have a calling. You have a ministry. You have a family. You have friends. You have a community. And God has put you strategically in every one of those relationships. And you are sheep, and you have a shepherd. You have the same access to the great shepherd as any pastor in North America. And you have a great shepherd, and he wants to lead you. He wants to guide you. He wants to use you in ministry to those people in your family, in your home, your neighbors, your school, your town, your county. And just like a pastor, if you're not praying, where are you getting your direction? Where are you getting your guidance? Where are you getting your encouragement? Where are you getting your strength? Where's your power? The bottom line is this. Every sheep needs a shepherd. Every sheep needs a shepherd. And the great shepherd is there for each of us. This morning, if you... Have been listening to this you've been wondering well you know I'm not even sure that uh, I have a relationship with God pastor you've been talking about a pastor's role with uh, suffering or hurting people and um, and pastor I've got questions and I want to know how to have a relationship with God I want him to be my shepherd can you tell me how can you show me that way The Bible tells us that God loves you, that he sent his son to come after you. When Jesus told stories describing his ministry, he said he was like a shepherd with a flock where one got away and got lost. And he said, I'm I'm like the shepherd that goes after the one that's lost. And so if you're here this morning, you feel like you're lost, no one cares for your soul, no one cares what's happening for you, listen, Jesus does. And Jesus is coming for you. He wants you to know him. The Bible says if you will turn to him in simple faith and put your trust in him, surrendering the control of your life, uh, letting go of your self-determination, stop seeking your own way, seeking your own purpose, seeking your own will, designs, even your dreams, setting all that aside and saying, I come to you. I know I've done wrong. Jesus died for your sins on the cross. And if you'll put your trust in him, he will wash away your sins. And he will give you the purpose for which you were made. He'll change your life. When the moment you trust him, the Bible says the Holy Spirit comes to live inside your heart, live inside you. And that's the presence of Jesus himself. And the Holy Spirit is there to communicate to you, to guide you, to teach you, to make his word come alive, to take sermons and Bible lessons that you hear and the things that you, you study and to help you learn, help you grow and become like Christ and then know Christ. But it begins with that first step of coming to Jesus and putting your trust in him and saying, I am putting my trust in you as my Lord and Savior all my days. Here's my life. We're going to stand and sing in just a moment. If you've never trusted Jesus, I want to invite you to come. He's the good shepherd who'll take care of your soul. Would you come to Jesus? And then, brother or sister in Christ, I don't know where you are in your walk with him, but he wants to shepherd your soul. He desires to be for you everything he described in the New Testament. Whatever you read about he was for his disciples, he is still that and offers himself to you. To get up every day with you, to lead you into your day, to guide you through your day, to guide you as you speak, to guide you as you seek his direction, seek his power, seek his help. It's a living relationship with a living Savior. And dear brother or sister in Christ, if you've been trying to live your life in your own strength, in your own effort, on your own power, and you feel like the wheels are coming off, could you just turn to Christ this morning in a fresh way and say, Lord, I surrender to you. We sang it earlier. Lord, I surrender to you. Take control of my life. I'm climbing up in that yoke with you. You said your yoke was easy and your burden is light. And so I come to you, Jesus, take control of my life. You know, even a Christian needs to pray that prayer. Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for teaching us through Peter and his writings so many years ago. Holy Spirit, we welcome you into these these moments that we're about to spend together. We ask you to guide us as we respond to you now. In Jesus' name, amen.